and in Canada, we want to force people into a box where you only get to talk about a subject from this point of view. And if you go outside of that, we're going to monitor it and stifle it. And Canada's passing legislation that's going to do that. I'm Bruce Figger, a veterinarian living in Sylvia, Kansas, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Well, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see my disheveled hair and my, uh, what do you even call this, flannel shirt. That is because my dear friend, Sean Newman, flew in from Canada last night and we were up late drinking beer, talking about hockey, eating pizza, and knew that before we got on with our day today that we should sit down and record a podcast interview. So you are in for a very interesting conversation with what I call a frontier man, a guy that is living in an outpost of Canada, having some of the most interesting and engaging conversations with controversial figures in the space of economics, what's going on in Canadian politics, and even comedy. This conversation is a good one. We explore all sorts of subjects, and because I'm sitting with a fellow podcast host, I got to just sit back and relax and really talk about deep things. You'll notice we get into some areas where we talk about subjects that are a little uncomfortable, and several times throughout the podcast we say, hey, if there's something we said that you don't agree with, make sure you reach out to us and let us know. Talk with us. That's the value of us putting out these ideas is because you're listening to them, and if they strike ideas or you come up with something you want us to hear, it's great if you'll reach out and tell us. We're going to go to the interview in just a moment, but if you want to get a legacy interview in before the holidays so that your family can watch it, go to LegacyInterviews.com. There you can sign up to have me interview your loved one to talk about their life stories, their childhood, their career, marriage, parenting, and the legacy that they want to leave behind. I interview them right here in these studios, or if they can't get here, we can always do it over Zoom. So if you'd like to learn more, go to LegacyInterviews.com. And now, without further ado, let's have a conversation with my Canadian friend, Mr. Sean Newman. Sean Newman, welcome to the United States. Is that how you started? Every single one. Yeah, because back in the day when I started, I used to have just one single camera, and uh, I was like recording my sound on this little box, and you try and connect the sound to the video. Yeah. And so I needed a way to do that. So I used to pound on the table and that became like the the system, right? You know, it's hard to break habits, but I kind of like those, right? That's like a the thump thump. It kind of gets me in the Yeah, it's, it starts it off. Podcast. Yeah. I don't know. I, I listen to ACDC, so. Before your podcast? Yeah. I, it's a old hockey habit, right? Like uh, before a, a big game, you have pump up music. And some people like to get real calm. I remember Braden Holtby talking. I mean, goalie who won the Stanley Cup with the Washington Capitals, talking about how he needed like to calm down before a game. I'm the opposite. I love to ramp up. And you'd think for a conversation, you'd do anything but try and ramp yourself up. Except it's like old habits die hard. So I listened to uh, ACDC uh, for those about to rock. We salute you. I think that's how it goes. So that's like interesting because is that your goal is to be electrified in this, in the conversations you're having with your guests? I mean, do you want to be like, let's go? No, but it gets my mind to like, we're going, it's time to perform. It's time to engage. It's time to zone in on what they're going to say because, uh, listening to somebody for an hour and a half, people might be like, Oh, if it's interesting, it's so easy. But to quiet your brain down to actually focus is difficult. So uh, by having a routine of playing a song that gets me going and gets me in the mood to do what I'm doing, to perform in my, you know, 
uh, no, it's not about getting up. It's about getting the brain on the right track of this is okay. It's time to go. You know, when you're talking about getting ready for the moment, one of the reasons is you have an experience that's not everybody has had, which is you're about to go play a sporting event that you really care about. And there are a ton of fans out there and they want you to perform and your teammates are all excited. And it's more than just that middle school basketball game where mom and dad are in the stands. This is like people cheering, banging on glass. You've got to deliver. I don't think most people know what the moments before something like that is even like. Oh, uh, I guess I just take it for granted, right? Like I grew up in a culture of, of team sports. I got to play at the, for the most part, the highest levels. Um, and that's just what it is. Like, I mean, for the most part, the high, I got to call you out because I was telling all these people, my, we were dropping my daughter off at her school today. And she had told everyone that a hockey player was coming to visit her. And they're like, advanced, oh, a hockey player. I'm yeah. like, oh, NHL. Yeah, advanced, advanced NHL. NHL he's six foot eight. He's <laughs> larger than life. He's missing his teeth. Uh, Sean shows up five foot seven teeth all in. Can't even pull them out anymore. Yeah. And played in Finland or yeah, something. I don't, domesticated. That, <laughs> yeah. So when you play, when you say I played at the highest levels for somebody that doesn't know anything at all about hockey, what does that mean? Well, so, um, I, I played at the highest levels all the way till, uh, out of high school. Right. So you have, you know, like it's all tiered, right? So if you played any sport, even I assume, uh, like baseball, you have like tier one or double A or whatever they're yeah, called. Traveling team. Traveling yeah. team, whatever. I played on those teams until high school. And then when you're in that age group, the highest level in Canada is the WHL, Western Hockey League. That's called tier one or yeah, tier one, I believe. And then right underneath that is junior A. So after high school, I played always a step below the top. I'm a small guy. You, you get to see it here firsthand. So everywhere I went, although I was a good hockey player, they said, you're too small. Uh, I got cut from so many teams saying, you're too small. You're too sm If you're four inches taller, and I don't know how many times I got to tell you, Vance, where I just wanted to swat the coach and be like, if I'm good enough, let me play and let's see. So I played junior A. So it was a tier below. And then in college, instead of uh, division one, which I think all your listeners in the States would understand, I played division three, which in hockey, uh, there's... Division one, division two, II, division three, but division two is more club hockey. So division one and division three are the two divisions where all the best go to for the most part. I, I don't want to say that's true across the board, but division three is recognized as like really, really good hockey. And a lot of junior A players go graduate from there and move into division three. So that's where I played. And then I went over to Finland and signed my only pro contract where, you know, like I, I say, like, I, you know, I laugh when people think I, I played in the NHL. I didn't. And I don't even want to conflate it. Um, but I did sign a contract. I did get paid to play. I did get to go see a different country and experience all that had to offer. And people are buying tickets yes. to come to this yeah. game because they want to be entertained by watching yeah. a, a sporting event where people know what they're doing. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you can go back in Canada uh, to like high school hockey and people will pay to go see that. Uh, certainly more in the playoffs and times like that. But like, I mean... Junior A, all through Junior A, they had to pay to come see us play. And I don't know, that's just part of the hockey culture. I didn't even really understand anything about this like moment before a sporting event until I got married. And really, I didn't understand it until after my wife and I had been married for years, way after, I know I never saw her swim competitively. But she would talk about like, you got a big race, 
you know, everybody is hanging on how fast are you swimming through the water? You've got this adrenaline as like a mediocre athlete. I never experienced that. Like nobody was ever like, oh man, Vance has just gotten into the water or onto the I ice. I should have brought you the smelling salts. They pass around uh, smelling salts before uh, hockey games, right? Because you, you'll watch any play. I've seen players. people do this, yeah. but it really oh, yeah. does like jolt you. Oh, well, I tell you what, I'll bring, then when you're down in Canada, when you come up to Canada, I'll have it in the studio. I'm going to add it into one of the things I do before a podcast because I think it's awesome. It's just part of the culture of hockey. And so for me, the understanding what it's like to be ready before a moment didn't come until I started speaking and I started having audiences of like, you know, first, you know, 50 people and then 100 and then 500 and then 1,000. And you're standing off on the wings and you've been thinking about what you're going to say for the whole plane ride. But now you're about to go on stage and you've got to handle the fact that you've got this adrenaline going on. Because if you don't slow your heart rate down or get in pace with it, right, it's either calm yourself way down or amp yourself up enough to be able to handle this. I didn't understand what you're describing was something that would have been relative. Well, you're performing again. Yeah, exactly. But I'd never done that when I was younger. You did it as a young person. I didn't do it until I was 30 years old. Well, I, I said the last time in Calgary, or when I was in Calgary and was on stage about a month ago, uh, to me, it was like an epiphany of like, my stage used to be the ice surface, right? And you understand and, and you know, you get all these nerves, exactly what you're talking about. And you get through the first shift and they kind of abate and you're, you're good to go for the rest of the game that's changed into the, the stage now because I've been hosting different shows here and the same nerves happen. And I joke about for the podcast, I get the same nerves before any time I step in front of a camera. Uh, and I enjoy that feeling. I didn't, I never thought I'd get that feeling again. It always came from hockey. And what you're talking about is, is performing. You're, you're, you know, you're putting put on the spot and you have to perform. And for, for people listening, uh, they don't tune in to Vance because he's got so fine. It's kind of like whatever, and he mumbles and whatever. It's because you get on and you talk about interesting things, and people want to hear that. They want to have their, you know. And just like in a sporting event, if you can come out and be in in pace with your adrenaline, right? If everything's hooked up, you get to go score a goal real fast. You get to go, you know, really knock somebody down on their ass right out of the gate. Same thing with performing. If you can match your adrenaline with your heart rate with your nervousness. And you can start that opening story and the glory of getting that first laugh, right? Like you, you, you're talking, you maybe have been talking for 15, 30 seconds, but if you get that first laugh, you're like, got him. Now let's go. Let's take this somewhere. See, and I like, I was saying, I just did the comedy show, right? I'm not a comedian. I'm a guy that likes to see people lean in. I love to see that they're actually engaging with what I'm saying. Because if they're distracted, if they're talking, if they're on their phones or something, obviously I'm not doing my job. Right? Yeah, that's right. And so um, where I sit, I I don't know. Maybe someday I'll be the the keynote speaker of of not one of my shows, but of whatever. But right now I'm just the the MC, the host, and I guide people through an experience. And so for me, performing is making sure that their experience is well worth the ticket they paid for. And I gauge that off of certainly this last time laughter was one but engagement which is seeing body language play out in a crowd well you're in a so you just did the sean newman presents where you brought in longtime podcast guest quick dick mcdick and then twos yes. which i don't know that my audience would know who he is but i actually have become 
buddies with him in my own mind because you guys have a <laughs> weekly show that you do. Yep. And I was telling you, I don't really give a shit about Canadian news that you guys yep. are talking about. I just like that you get on with this guy once a week and rap on about like, oh, can you believe the Canadians are doing this and the blah, blah, blah. But you got these two guys together and got people to pay for tickets. Hundreds of people came to your event and you put on a comedy show. I, I don't know. I, I To me, none of that seems like that earth shattering. Oh, that's nuts, man. That takes real balls because you could have been like, because you could have been like, uh, hey, man, everybody come to my show and nobody shows up or four people buy tickets. And then you got to be like, hey, guys, want to do a comedy show for four people? But that wasn't what happened. You risked, you know, some amount of embarrassment. You brought your friends in that you think are funny, but, you know, can they deliver when they're on stage? Like you took some gambles there. I guess I just, I don't know. I, I can't figure out if I'm naive or what. I just, I, I mean, certainly I felt the pressure, but um, I think in no matter what you start the first time you start it, that's the risk you run across the board. It doesn't matter if you're putting on a whatever show or, a, you know, you're having a meal for whatever. Like, I, I mean, I'm being very broad there. It doesn't matter what you start. Start a podcast, right? People are so afraid just to try something because of what other people will think. And certainly I want a full house. And certainly I want it to be packed. I want it to be fun. I want it to be the talk of the town and everything else. But sometimes just getting an idea out of your head is the best thing to do. Because I had an idea. I wanted to see if it played out. I wanted to see if it worked. And it worked. And I'm like, wow, that worked. So what was what, So you're, you're standing up there. People have had a dinner. Now you're introducing Quick Dick McDick. Yeah. Did, he, did he tell you, hey, I'm going to do this and this and this. And what do you think? Or how do, how do you guys arrange this? They made fun of me because I'm the time, they call me the time cop. Because I told uh, Quick Dick, you know, he normally goes on for an hour and a half. And I say, you got 45 minutes. And don't, like, I'll let you. And he's like, okay, right? And he's kind of laughing. I'm like, no, like, I don't like to waste people's time. I'm going to hook you? Are you, is it like that? I, I mean, it wasn't that. I'd have to, you, but you'd have to handle it. And you were telling him, I will handle it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want to have, like, there's probably in an audience of, we had 200 and change people there. In that audience, there's probably 10 people. You could talk till four in the morning and they would not move. But for most people, they got to pee. They got attention spans. They're hungry. They want to drink. They got to check in with their kids. Right. And, and so you got to be um, respectful of, of their time. And I'm no different. I come to uh, somebody's show. I want them to stick to a schedule. You build me a schedule, stick to it. I'm not saying you got to be on the minute every time, but understand that my time is valuable. And so, yeah, they, they made fun of me as being the time cop, except one of the you know, when I asked for feedback after the show, lots of people appreciate that because I don't know how many things I've gone to over the past like five years where it's supposed to be an hour show or an hour talk and it turns into an hour and 40 minutes. And you're like, oh my God. You know, I grew up going to church and the church we went to, it was supposed to be, I don't know, an hour and 20 minutes. And it, w and it would go, Vance, anywhere between an hour and 20 minutes to three hours. That unknowing is like, it's been driven into me. I can't do that anymore. Oh, just, I'm in total agreement. In fact, so I gave a talk just last night, right before you showed up at my uh, my house and uh, I was preparing for it and I always test it out with my wife and she was like, oh, you should add that in. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We are about cutting things out. I want to end five minutes before people think I should end yes. because it is way, way, way better than end five minutes after people think you should end and you know you talk about 10 or 20 minutes after you know you might as well take all that goodwill that you and throw it out and, the door yeah light it on fire right yeah. like because i hate the guy that does it to me that makes me sit there because of my 
social good graces that I'm not going to embarrass him by standing up and walking out because I need to go to the bathroom or because I'm just not interested. Yeah. So I hate that guy and I never want to be him. Well, I mean, so to me, that's like really important. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is, is I don't do a hot mic either. Right. So you, you've been to events where they take questions from the crowd, right? So yeah. You walk around, you give a mic to, uh, I don't know, Trish and, and Trish tells a 15 minute story. Oh, this must be a Canadian thing. I would never hand that microphone. <laughs> Why? Well, uh, Jordan Peterson. First event I ever went to and watched him well before he was, he was on his rise, but he wasn't, they did a hot mic. And I was like, well, bravo to you because you're taking away from what I'm here for. The person who paid to come to the show. And that is to hear you speak. And there are more creative ways to facilitate getting you to speak more with questions from the audience than giving out a hot mic. Yes, I agree with that. A hundred percent. In fact, when I would go to, to uh, do these like hostile audiences, right? You're talking about people that hate Monsanto and you've just given a talk and you've maybe won over 90% of the crowd, but there's still 10% that love to see you light up on fire. When I asked for questions, I would do the Ben Shapiro move where I'd say, if, if you want to have a question and you don't agree with what I've been saying up here, go to the front of the line, right? And then we would have a, a dialogue. But I tried very hard not to do it as a microphone thing. Sometimes the, the, the coordinators of the event would have a microphone for other people, but it's because- How, those... is, that, how is that experience? Having somebody in a live event try and call you on? Like a drug. Like a, like a drug. You enjoyed that? Oh, because because- I somehow in this situation became a a spokesperson for the most hated company that people could imagine. And and when someone would come up to the microphone and they would ask a hostile question, if they were right about what they were bringing up, I wanted to know that. Right? If they knew something about GMOs or about pesticides or about whatever that was negative that they could show me then I would love to be like, I didn't know these, are these assholes really doing this? Is this a terrible thing that they're, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me that. So because I wasn't sitting there being like, I have to defend my mothership Monsanto, it, it made it so we were actually in a dialogue. And if what they did was they stood up there and they said something crazy, right? Something like, you know, your GMOs are getting out into the wild population and this is causing this and this and this, then I can work with them to explore how did you come to these ideas? What are you concerned about? What do you and get them to actually think in front of this crowd and not embarrass them? Give them a chance to walk away feeling like they learned something. And if you can do that, you've built a bond not just with the 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 person that you're talking with, but the entire audience and and that facilitates a discussion that you can't have any other way. Because very rarely in our lives, maybe a few times at work, you know, you really dust up with somebody, do we really get into head-to-head, face-to-face conflict. And most people, when they get into that face-to-face conflict, they want to get out of it, right? They're like looking for a way to move around it. But the real thing that is valuable is in the sparks that happen because of that. And I was getting an opportunity over and over and over again to see those sparks and to learn, what do I know? What do they know? How can I make this work? It was, it was like taking a drug. Fully in, in, embrace engaging everything, my entire mind. Those experiences are uncomfortable. That's why, I mean, you want to move past it. You want to be around people that agree with you because then, you know. <laughs> but in saying that, you learn a lot about yourself when you put yourself in situations where 
your ideas are challenged. And we were talking about your uh, your presentation and you're putting somebody else up on the stage, right? You're putting Quick Dick up there. What is it like to hand the mic over and be like, go ahead, do your thing. And how did he do? Uh, I thought both guys did really good. It was the first time 222 minutes or twos had been uh, had ever done. Yeah, stand. I saw a photograph of his face show up on yeah. social media. Uh, first time for that. First time he'd ever uh, done stand up in front of. Well, before he at first time he'd ever done it. And so I thought uh, Quick Dick is almost a professional. Oh, well, he is a professional now, right? He tours around doing comedy, and uh, although he's jokes about bombing, um. He's really good. He's very charismatic and, you know, he's a likable character, if you would. Um, and isn't he playing like multiple characters on the stage? Like, didn't you tell me that? Yeah, he's well, like he, he has a I don't want to give away too much, but he, he has a, a, a bit or whatever where he talks to his his younger self from like the 90s or something, you know, and tells him we're going to get famous being quick uh, off quick Dick McDick. And he goes back and forth. It's just like it's really easy to follow along with. And it's hilarious. Right. So like handing off the mic. Um, we were talking, you know, when it comes to Sean Newman podcast or Sean Newman presents, I'm entrusting my self of interactions with people across the podcast that they can represent what I believe well. And so, um, quick dick twos are two guys that I've brushed shoulders with, you know, through the podcast that I really respect. You're another one, right? So it's like, I trust when I hand the mic over, they're not going to do something silly that, you know, all of a sudden smears Sean with a, with a, you know, a blemish or whatever, you know? And so it, it was, it was awesome. It was easy. It was easy to hand the mic over to quick dick. I've literally watched the guy now for what, three years. And a lot of his thoughts are my thoughts. He just has a different way of articulating them. And so, uh, uh, to have those two guys, no, it was easy. Like I, I got to sit back and, and enjoy the audience for me. It was less about what Quick Dick was saying and more about how the audience reacted to Quick Dick because that's what I created. I didn't create uh, what create uh, his cute, bits. His you were bits. creating. Hey, I, I brought the people together. I facilitated. I think that's something I'm realizing about you. That's like your superpower that I I don't know that I can actually name it, but you are extraordinarily good at bringing people together. And, and in particular, when they don't really know why they're coming together, but they feel like they want to be a part of the thing that is created by you. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, I don't know. I, I see things that matter to me. And uh, certainly um, when I started the podcast, I quickly like realized, man, I really like this. Um, but if that's the Sunday or the, you know, the ice cream cone, the cherry on top is doing the live events, like putting together something where speakers are willing to come and do it for me. Uh, and then people are willing to pay for it is like in my wildest dreams, I'd never thought that I'd be able to facilitate that and actually create something that, um, you know, people enjoy. I love being, I'm not that, uh, you know, I look around your studio. I'm not that detail orientated uh, on certain things, but when it comes to that show, I'm anal. And I, 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 I'll give you, I'll give you some ideas. So we're setting it up the first time we did it in March. And I probably spent an hour on stage placing chairs in what I thought where I wanted to be. And then I sat in each chair and talked out of each chair. I made sure there wasn't weird sounds. I made sure sight lines made sense. I made sure when I sat and then I got a group of people to go sit in them so I could see it from the, from the crowd. And 
to me, all that really matters because you're creating an experience and the experience needs to have a feel, a look, and every single detail really, really, really matters. Because if too many little details go wrong in a show, that's what sticks out and that's what ruins the entire experience. And so normally I don't, I don't, you know, like, uh, let's just take a cord running along the floor. It's like, whoop de doo But in that, it really matters to me because the audience gets to see everything. They get to see the entire it sounds uh, to me like that's empathy. Like, oh. it, it sounds to me like that's you being able to place your mind in or somebody else's perspective in your own mind and inhabit it. And it's not like um, you, you feel bad for them or anything. You're like, hey, how will this feel? And not only for the person sitting in the chair, but you're also mental modeling what the person in the audience is going to experience by the way that person in the chair is sitting. And the only way you can do that is if you're able to map your consciousness onto what other people are conscious of. I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way. I've always put it in the scope of I need the performer to walk in. Quick Dick walked in and went, holy crap. He's a guy who performs in all these small towns and nothing against small towns. But it's hall after hall after hall. Maybe they got a stage. Maybe they don't. Um, you know, it's it's whatever tablecloths thrown on and I'm, I'm making a mockery of small towns. I come from a small town. I understand that a hall is a hall is a hall. I want to give a feel, a big city, like, wow, this is upscale that people can still pay for. And a performer doesn't get all the time, right? A quick dick doesn't get invited to uh, what's the big theater in St. Louis. Oh, he will. He will. Sure. The Fox theater. Yeah. Sure. Some, people, someday yeah. he will graduate to that level. Maybe he's already graduated to that level. I want to give every performer the opportunity to feel like they've graduated to that level. And so for the performer, they leave going, wow, that was like, I'd gladly do that again. And to the audience, they get to walk in and be treated like they're at that theater. When in fact, they're just at a small venue in Lloydminster or wherever, hopefully the next ones go. And the attention to detail, the, the, the feel of like, this is kind of grand. And they become my best salespeople because they leave going, wow. That was something. The people that didn't come to the first SMP presents, some of the things I heard was like, oh, I'll definitely make, I didn't realize that's what it was going to be. I, like, I, I wasn't sure. I didn't, you know, and it was the first one and I understand. So I had to like knock it out of the park, so to speak. And I did. It sold out. It was a, like, and I created something that I hoped people would leave and spread the good word. And I saw that in the second one because people who bought tickets to the first one bought tickets to the second one. Oh, man. I mean, that's when you're in the territory. Have you ever heard of a, a guy named Kevin Kelly who started Wired Magazine? He has a, a paper that's worth looking up called The Thousand True Fans. And he's like, look, everybody's focused on scale and, you know, getting really big. But really, if you have a thousand fans that will that trust you enough because you've built up this relationship that if you put something out, they're willing to plunk down $100 thousand times a hundred, you can live on that. Right. And that's a, that's the, 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 it only happens when instead of focusing on like, I want to go out and get as many as I can, you focus on like, I'm going to deliver for these people. And as long as I deliver for those people, then our relationship works commercially. Yeah. I really like that thought. I, uh, it's worth reading the whole paper because I'm just giving you the very high level. And he yeah. basically describes you know, the, our ideas about what a business should be have been changed in some way. That's not wrong, but it often leaves aside the craftsman 
the person that like everybody can, wants to have millions of views. And I I ask you, Vance, what does a million views do? I I don't actually want to have. I mean, if it happened, there'd, there'd be benefits. But we talked about this before. I want to be niche famous. I want the people that I want to be talking to to be the people I'm talking to. The, the guy listening to this podcast right now, I want him to know that if he sees me somewhere or he has a thought and he wants to drop into my DMs, that he can do that. But I don't want to walk down the street and have people... You don't want to be Matthew McConaughey. Uh, yeah, I, I know, yeah, it's exactly right. I have no interest in that. But I want my people, the people that are listening to us right now, to be like, yo, Vance, I saw this thing or I read this book. or I. That's what I want. So a million views, the only thing that that gets me is a deeper gravity well to find the person that was washing dishes while I was talking with Sean Newman and uh, and realized like, oh man, I remember what it was like before a big game and let me tell Vance about that. That's what I want. And I want voice famous. So, uh, you know, like you got the cameras and everything set up and I'm like, at times I'm like, I don't really care. I don't know. I don't care if people see who I am. Um, one of the best part of that's because you're not very good looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I beg to differ, but hey, that's that's me. Um, one of the coolest stories I got is I was walking through the casino in Lloyd. And I mean, it's my hometown, fair enough. But it was like one in the morning I was there. This is before I quit my my previous job. And I was just talking to the customer like, you know, like this. And a woman looked up, no idea who she was. She goes, you Sean Newman? I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, I don't recognize you, but that voice can't. And I was like, oh, that's, I mean, that's a high compliment, right? Like, I like, like to that. me. Uh, I'm with you. I don't, I don't, I don't want to have to worry about going to the grocery store and being mauled. Right. Like, you know, uh, Chris Barber, I just had him back on. He was the leader of the uh, freedom convoy that went to Ottawa. One of the, uh, leaders I should say. And, uh, he was the terrorists that were doing horrible things in Ottawa. That's right. I don't want to yeah. get kicked off YouTube like oh, yeah. you did. You had that guy on YouTube and got kicked off. It's true. And he talks about uh, him and his wife going out right now to like restaurants and things like that. And there's not an occasion where he doesn't have to stop and take pictures with people because they all recognize him. And that's, you know, Chris Barber, your, your audience can be like, who? And it's like, well, if you're in that world, he is uh, a superstar. And he's this humble giant of man. You want a giant of a man in your studio. He walks in and he looks like Paul Bunyan. Like he's just this big man and just gentle, super kind thoughtful but he talks about his wife being like you know is life ever going to go back to normal where we can just go for a meal a date night and not have to be worried about signing autographs and taking pictures with random strangers and whatever else and i I agree with you i don't want that well your your thing about being voice famous i like that term that's a good good term because one of the things i learned by being in radio is that it is way way more personal that people hear your voice than they see you because when you're right now, like somebody's got earphones in or they're driving down the road and it's Speaking just them. Into your brain. Yeah. You're talking, you're like whispering right into their ear. Right. And there's very few times. The only time somebody you can hear somebody is if you're close enough to be able to do this. And and the experience of listening to you and, and twos on there. Right. I'm driving down my car. But in my imagination, we're all three sitting there. We're all homies, right? That's, that's, Even as much as I argue with twos and I'm like, what? Oh, he's such a blowhard, blah, 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 blah. I'm still like, but what's he going to say next? Oh, is he going to get Sean some you, shit you know about what, it? You know what joke he opens up with at, at the, I'm not going to say anything offensive. So let's talk about trans people. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, I'm like, oh man, right? Like, and if you know who twos is, I mean, like it, it just fits his personality, but. But that, that voice, right? The thing that I have, I hadn't seen a photo of him and I hadn't seen 
quick, quick dick without his beard until yeah. he did that contest. And in fact, I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't seen it. Right. He looks like a turtle. <laughs> um, but but like I had built a relationship with that voice and that voice I have a relationship with. And as soon as you put imagery to it, right, all of a sudden that relationship changes. Doesn't necessarily get any any better, better or worse. Yeah. It's just it changes. And so your voice famous thing, I agree with. It's this Well, one of the other things I do, Vance, and I don't I I, I um don't know how everybody interacts with their audience, but I have my phone number on every single episode I do, which people think I'm insane for because they're like, you know, bots or, you know, or or hate mail or whatever. And and to me it's been a an eye into my audience. Uh, another connection, a way to interact with me that, you know, to listen to one person, but then to share your thoughts with me. And actually like, uh, it's probably one of the smartest things I've ever done is allowed people, if they enjoy the show or hate the show to let me have it. And that gives me an eye into what they're thinking, uh, what they enjoyed out of an episode, maybe what they hated out of an episode. Maybe they hate me and that's fine. And I, that I, ability. I, I do that through Twitter DMS through Facebook but I would be reluctant on the phone because uh, have you had anybody that actually hates you, that that spends part of their day trying to harm you, trying to harm your family? Um, I can safely say not. And um, everybody warns me about that. And uh, I'm a firm believer in the good of humanity. And that may be naive. And there may be somebody down the road who will want to do just that. But the way I conduct myself, I'm not worried about it. Oh, but it's a real thing. I know it is. So um, fortunately, I have a wife that like very supportive and I've been able to build up a thing where there's no such thing as firing me. Like you, I mean, you can fire me from one single client or one single thing, but like I'm, I'm unfireable. But I had a person, multiple people, but one in particular went out and wrote articles in Slate magazine and put out articles about how horrible I am. I guess I just come I come back to, I'm not hiding from anyone. I literally have my name on the show. I'm literally open on any DMs. I don't try and hide from Twitter, Facebook, whatever. So to add one more thing in there with my email and everything else is like, I'm pretty open no matter which way you want to go. With it. I think that the my day, point... The day that I graduate into this realm where I need to put some stop gaps in to, uh, you know, like uh, to get... You know, there's certain famous people out there. Let's take Matthew McConaughey. I'm sure he's got eight rings around him where you got to pick a lock and then, oh, there's the next wall. You got to pick that walk because he needs that in order to function, be have a little sanity. I'm just not there. I have a good friend that she's been on the podcast before. I'd love to have her on again sometime uh, named Julie Kelly. And somehow along our path, when Julie Kelly and I were running around doing stuff uh, in biotech, somehow we pissed some dude off, right? Some scientist dude. And, uh, he started threatening us to the extent where he uh, published my address and uh, and tried to tell he was trying to like rile people up that uh, you know this so that guy advanced, uh, to this day I, I I think he was like slightly a deranged guy I I don't I don't really understand and like the more I looked into like why is he upset the more I was like there's a darkness here that I don't that I'm not and and when somebody starts doing that and you're like. I don't know if I'm going like I I actually had to be escorted because of the police home from work by a police officer. And like when that happens, you're like, okay, we're so, playing with real, real bullets here. So when I hear you say all that, I'm like, that's why I'm probably naive. I haven't graduated into that experience, maybe. Um, 
Or maybe Canadians are just super nice and you don't have to. Or maybe I live in, as you joke, an outpost and I'm like, you want to come all the way up to little old Lloydminster and come to my doorstep around. The dude did come to St. Louis. That's why it was a problem. He was making these threats while not being here. And then he showed up here. And then it was like, okay, now what are we going to do? So I had some of that naivety and part of it probably was that I was working for Monsanto and there's that, but like. So now all of a sudden, Julie Kelly, who's up in Chicago, is getting called by the police to be like, hey, he might come to Chicago next, right? So once you have that experience and then you have somebody write articles about you and they're literally trying to be like, I have CC tweeted at your employer and emailed it to them, these articles that I've written about you, like that's when you're like, okay, there are people that want to harm me. How am I going to handle this? That's why I really hope I stay niche famous. Just Small enough to have my my people reach out to me, but not big enough to ever have anybody think that they can derive value from harming me. Yeah, I hope I never get to that point. I I don't know. Um, you're probably actually a more likable person than I am, though. I, I you're very like like people want to see you and the things you're doing succeed in a way that I feel that way. I want to see your stuff well, succeed. I appreciate that. I don't know. I are there is there evil in the world? Yes, absolutely. If there's good, there is evil. I mean, or bad, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, is it lurking around the street corners? I'm sure it is. But if I approach the world that way, um, I just think that's a very dismal way to approach the world. I, I want to put, I mean, it sounds corny to say out loud, but I, I want to approach the world with positivity. I believe positive, one of the things I used to say all the time, I haven't said a long time, but I'll bring it back up. I think positivity spreads just fast negativity. And so, even if some deranged lunatic searches me out, I hope that it doesn't change the way I look at the world for the rest of the time. Because I, I just got a lot of hope for people. For me, it it definitely did. I know, but it, you but you had Monsanto, you had Jordan Peterson, you had all these things, you had the Twitter mob, you had all these things come out. I just, I've never interacted on social, like people, I would say I am as boring as it gets on social media. I don't go on social media to rile people up. And, to be successful, you need to have opinions on social media because people are attracted to hard opinions. And I'm just, I'm working my way along this adventure, if you will. And maybe someday when I'm 40 or maybe someday when something horrific or grandiose happens in life, I'll solidify an opinion. For now, I am on the path of trying to talk to as many people as possible, pull so much out of it because I think... For the first, I've said this lots to you. I think for the first 30 years of my life, I was on autopilot. I wasn't paying attention to shit. So now it's time to dig into all the things that matter in the world and try and figure out how they work, how it impacts me, how it impacts my family, how it impacts my community. And I've always gotten further ahead by approaching the world with love, kindness, positivity. And with my audience, um, I feel like they protect me as much as anything. And having open accessibility to me it just hopefully builds a connection even more because they have some of the greatest ideas under the sun. And I want them to be able to access me and 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 move along. I mean, if some deranged guy wants to find Sean Newman, I shouldn't put this on airwaves, but it's like, whether my number's there or not, it's not that hard of a thing. For somebody who's that- Oh, absolutely. Wants to come after you, it's like, well, I mean, everything about me is on social media. I think the thing for me- was that I wanted to be that positive, everything's going good. And when I ended up having to confront the reality of it being dangerous, 
and still kept going. That to me is like that. That's the right way of, to go. Do you think it's scale? What I mean by scale is is like I come from a very small community. Now Lloyd is thirty thousand roughly people, but Hillmond is this tiny little farming community. You live in St. Louis. How many people live in St. Louis? Oh, I mean, the metro area is over a million. For sure, yeah. So, a million plus. Like, I was saying this about, you know, getting involved in politics. I'm kind of jumping around here. But I look at Canada, and I, I truly believe that uh, there's still impact, as small as I am, to be had on whether it's local governance or provincially, or even maybe federally. Federally, I think, is a little bit much. i, I got to be honest. I think provincially... Um, you know, where I'm from in Western Canada, I think the population is small enough, you know, like um, Saskatchewan, giant province, has just over a million people. So to me, I look at scale and I just go, maybe I am naive, but I look at it and I think that what you deal with is different than what I deal with. I think that... Um I think it actually is maybe not so much about scale because the people that I'm that I've run into conflict with aren't here, right? They're out in the world, right? They're not in St. Louis. I think that um, I have a particular like um, I poke at things, right? And uh, and and I'll do it naively, or I'll do it where I'm letting myself be naively. Like I remember when I did that Jordan Peterson thing, when when it started to like get hot, I was like, how could I have known? And my buddy was like. You knew. You knew. Yeah. Right. And like, I don't think I knew consciously, but the, the, the whole reason I brought him to the American Farm Bureau was because the president of the Farm Bureau said, hey, Vance, we're looking to do something a little edgy this year. And I was like, oh, he's asking for edgy. He doesn't know how edgy this is going to get, but this will be a lot of fun. Right. And by being drawn to that electricity, that's that's what did it. And it's I I don't go out on on Twitter and go like oh you moron or you whatever like yeah absolutely I, but I definitely am willing to poke on things that I think but like I, what's I, going on I poke I just poke differently I poke in a two hour interview and so people got to be willing to give up their time and I find the people that want to learn like, don't get me wrong I mean we got an anti hate network in Canada that is actively searching out things that they disagree with. What is that? An anti-hate network? It's a government thing. Looking for, <laughs> for hate speech and everything else. Are Dude, you serious? Canada is not like, you know, you joke about Sean. I, I get offended. I get offended when we joke about me getting removed from YouTube and I'm like some radioactive guy. Go listen to my 300 plus episodes. I'm about as level headed, I think. As oh, you get. just you are literally just asking people what do you right. think, and they're on all and sides of things. And in Canada, we want to force people into a box where you only get to talk about a subject from this point of view. And if you go outside of that, we're going to monitor it and stifle it. And Canada's passing legislation that's going to do that. And so we got Annie Hate Network. They're actively searching out things that they deem to be fringe views or misogynistic or racist or you stick whatever word you want on it. It ain't good. So who knows? Maybe I'll be doing the Sean Newman podcast from St. Louis soon enough. I have no idea, right? Like it's, it's a strange world we're, we're, we're creating up North. Where does this go? Like, I remember when Jordan Peterson was talking about the, this stuff and he was like, Oh, there's doom. You know, this is what got both of us, I think to read the Gulag Archipelago, yeah. right? Like, is it, really going that way or is that the way to get everybody to pay attention just like we had an election here last just the other day and people were like 
save democracy by voting for me. Is that what's going on with the worried about the hate group or it, or the anti-hate group? Or is that really, is this headed in a dark, dark place? I, I don't know. Um, if I went back a hundred years and maybe a little less than that, um, and women were fighting for their right to vote, would I be sitting there going, this is a bad idea, right? Like, look at where this is leading. I have no idea. I sit now and I go like, I'm happy women get to vote. I'm happy, you know, like everyone's being treated equally. So the argument becomes now, can you push the pendulum so far that it it goes beyond everyone's equal into this world that is make-believe? And that's what it feels like we're pushing to. We're not ta- we're not allowed to talk about um well, I'll tell you the Overton window just on what you're sure. saying has shifted. And let me tell you why. You know, we were talking uh, we were heading down to the studio uh about um the things you're not allowed to talk about, right? That that there are there are certain things that society has just decided like, "Nope, oh, this is the line." And if you have any opinions on the other side of that line, you know, we don't even talk about it. And one of them would be a line you just use like I'm glad we're all equal, right? In the U.S., the way that you used to vote was whether you were a property owner or senators were appointed by their legislators. So instead of people having a popular vote for your senators, what you would do is you would vote for your representatives and the representatives would say, okay, we're going to choose this businessman, this banker, this accountant, this attorney, this whatever, and he's going to go represent us for six years in the office, but he's not elected. And so property owners put the representatives in, and then the representative said, we're going to send that senator. If I went out and tried to offer this as where we should roll back to in order to have a more peaceable, peaceful, productive democracy, people would label me a hateful person that doesn't want women or you know poor people or uh, other people to have uh, the right to vote. So that's an idea that we don't even talk about. And most people don't even know that senators, when the Constitution was set up, weren't elected. But people don't talk about this because we want everybody to be equal and have an equal share in our democracy. You think? The things that we want to talk about, let me see if I can spit this out the right way. People don't want to talk about that or the structures that be don't want us to talk about it. Because to me, I think people want to talk about some shit. And the structures that be don't want us to talk about it. How how does a structure want or not want something? Well, a structure is ran by human beings. And a structure has control. So a human being is exerting their ideas and beliefs onto their control group. And over time, these structures have fallen from maybe many hands into a few hands. Does that make sense? Did I- yeah, I mean, I actually would say the opposite. I think... It's gone from being in a few hands to being in many hands. That is the mob, right? Like we are now social media. Well, social media, any, any way, because we never used to be able to centralize our government in this way, our news in this way, right? Like that everybody could be looking at the same thing. One of the, the things I point out is it used to be, imagine if you were a king, right? You have a castle and you have a place where you can address all the people around you. It used to be that the loudest, the, the the most people that you could address would be the people that could hear your voice with sure. no amplification, sure. no written word, no social media. Yeah. 
that, so it used to limit an individual's power to the volume of their voice and the structure of the room that you could bring people into. And now a kid could have a Twitch stream, a, a Twitter handle, a YouTube channel that gives them more power than the most powerful king for hundreds and hundreds of years as far as how many people can as hear their As far as ideas. reach, yeah. sure. And I think that that has changed the nature so that the structures are not run by a few people. They're run by mobs of people. They're run by what does the, the group want? You know, I'd, I'd love to write about this and then actually uh, try and, but here, you know, this is what we're doing. We're trying to get out some thoughts. I think it's an illusion of power then. Okay. I, I mean, we all know about algorithms and everything else. I was just listening to, I think it's Robert Epstein. Does that sound right? Uh -huh. uh, on Joe Rogan talking about how Google manipulates how people think and how it's a mind control machine because they've studied and structured things on, you know, and he was talking, he was just talking politics but just on things they suggest just on the Google machine and how it manipulates how a person thinks. And when you hear things like that, I just, I, I come all the way back. Like I don't want to get too into the weeds. I mean, I love going into them, but like, I really think, you know, we think social media, it's, it's, it's a way to get around structures, but at the same time, uh, the powers that be still control a ton of government influence, all the major media outlets. Uh, I mean, geez, they, they have censorship on the YouTubes, the Twitters, the Facebooks. So when a guy like me talks about common things that aren't that big, sure, people can find it, but they throttle, they remove ideas, they censor. And so you go, well, it's ruled by the mob. Yeah, it's ruled by the mob. They choose. I, I accept that. I, I agree with with that and and um if you control the powers of how ideas get out to the mob then you ultimately do control the mob it's i think that elon musk's purchase of twitter as much as i admire spacex and i think hey it's pretty amazing that he's built a car company you know like and you know there, there used to be thought that you literally couldn't build a new car company i think that twitter is actually the greatest grab of all time probably got it super cheap right 25% of the American population is on Twitter. And he now is going to be able to be at the helm as ideas like neurons in a brain are flying across throughout the world. And it's, it's a game changer, right? This is kind of where you start being like, are we in the real world or are we in a movie? Because th this was a plot twist that he took that over. And it seems like he has the opportunity to give the middle finger to the technocrats that run YouTube and Instagram, Facebook, and all of these other things. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. One man in control of something that powerful scares the shit out of me, right? Like, because I mean, like, if it aligns with me, I'm like, oh, it's going to be great. But what happens if it, you know, like, what happens if it doesn't? And he's got this huge ability to just tailor. But I mean, we can put that towards anything. I mean, Zuckerberg on Facebook is a prime example. Uh, of, of I've already given over to the idea that Elon Musk will become dramatically more powerful because he's already got a huge head start on getting rockets into the space where they're going to be able to go out and mine asteroids. And when they bring an asteroid down to Earth that's filled with platinum, he's going to be more wealthy than all of the wealth that exists right now on Earth. And uh, I think he's already won. Because how are you going to catch up? You can start your spaceship company now to go out and mine asteroids. 
So for me, I'm kind of like, all right, well, let's see where this mega gajillionaire wants to take the world because he's already won. It's like watching a chess game that you already see have played out. And he's got a little Donald Trump factor to where he actually, you know, for a lot of people when he went on Joe Rogan and was smoking the cigar and smoking weed and all that thing, just has a human factor in a weird way because he is an eccentric guy that uh, people enjoy. Like they, he, he lets loose a little bit and a lot of people these days do not do that yeah, it feels like you're getting behind the curtain a little bit like, and yet that's probably strategy by him too and you just you know speaking of uh people behind the curtain uh did you follow this andrew tate guy at all has this hit you a, yeah a little bit yeah what is your take on andrew tate honestly i don't know if i i don't know if i've listened watched enough to be like this is my take every time something gets framed i question who's framing it so i'll get i'll give you an example um that's more in my wheelhouse jeremy mckenzie raging dissident know anything about this guy so he's a canadian uh who kind of he's been on alex jones several times canadian military guy who uh started a, a show the rage where he goes on and he has like a live stream for three hours where he just tears apart everything he's a bit comedian bit crosses the line into like just goes a little bit too far. Probably wants a show. But other points, he's just like bang on, bang on, bang on, bang on. He's in jail right now. And uh, he's been on the show twice. Um, and he has been framed as a terrorist for Diagalon, Creating a Diagalon on... So Diagalon, he drew... It's this fictitious country. You're totally getting me kicked off of YouTube. Keep going. <laughs> that goes from right to left. And it, it, he drew it on paint. Anyways, it's a black flag with a white line. And it's was all the states and provinces that were kind of against, uh, I think it was back then, mass mandates. Anyways, and he, and it's VP is a, a goat that snorts cocaine. And like, it's fictitious. Except now it's been framed as a terrorist organization that he is the head of. And I'm not saying he well, is- This is like the Pepe flag, but- for Canada. For Canada. So he's in jail right now. He's been in jail for, he hasn't been able to make bail, and he's been in jail now, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks. It's been it's been a while. Now, it isn't just because of that, right? He's done some things that have not helped himself. He's, uh, you know, he got drunk on a, on a rage cast uh, with a group of his buddies and said he was going to, uh, he joked about raping uh, the leader of the Conservative Party's wife. Okay, that's not good. That's not good. And I would agree. I'm like, that's that's like well over the line. And if I ever get him back on, we will talk about it because I'll be like, you know, you're not helping yourself out. So anyways, where I'm going with this is when I talk, when I we bring back to Tate, I talk about McKenzie. It's like, who's framing it and what are they trying to achieve? So I don't know the full story behind Tate. I haven't listened to enough. I know a huge chunk of the story about McKenzie in our country. And I go, there's more to this story than what the the mainstream or even the people that get so angry about one thing he said. I relate to this Tate guy in the sense that he is saying things that I don't, I think he's a lot like Peterson. He's really smart, but he doesn't know what he thinks until he says it out loud. And he is talking about things that people don't want to say. And sometimes in order to get people's attention, he rattles it up by being like, I don't want a woman airline pilot because if we're in a, terrible disaster 
you know, is she going to be able to handle it better than a man? Well, I don't know, but I want a man there, right? And then that, like, really alienates well, that, me, right? Well, and then that draws everybody in. Right, and then he's got some point that you're like, well, actually, the truth of the matter is, if I'm in a, in a if my wife and I are driving home and it's snowing like crazy in a blizzard, I'm not going to be like, honey, would you drive us home? Here are the keys, right? I'm going to drive us home. It's my responsibility to get my wife and my kids home. And there's a point there, right? There's a point there that people don't want to talk about because there may be some uncomfortable nuance with should I drive or should my wife drive that, 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 that even now, you know, I'm hearing people, I'm hearing, I, I got a lot of women listeners, a lot of ag women listeners that, uh, will, that, that, uh, are hearing this right now being like, fuck you. I could drive in the snow better than you. And, and there are going to be women that can. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I know a few of them. But a lot of them, they can't. And that's the thing that Tate brings up. Or, or. And this is just one thing. Or it, it, just from my side, even if they can't, I still feel uh, uh, as a husband and a, a family man that it's my resp responsibility to protect my family. Right. And, and I don't and I shouldn't feel guilty for that. And and you sh and to even assert it. Right. There are people out there that want to say, like, no, 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 no. We shouldn't even talk about this. One of the things, yeah, but but those people that don't want to talk about anything, they're the biggest dangers to society we have. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's no bigger. That's censorship. That's trying to get people to groupthink where they actually don't talk about what matters. That's why, in my opinion, we're where we're at in different parts of Canada, different parts of the world, is because for so long they framed it. This is what you get to talk about, and everybody thinks like this, and you will find out. No, that's not true at all. And now they try and frame it as white supremacy or misogynistic or racist or whatever word they want to try and, and put this in. It's like, no, people just want to talk about some things. So here's one of my uh, edgy uh, thoughts. And I don't know. I would be very interested if you fit this category, reach out to me on my DMs or my or my Facebook. Like, I actually want to talk with you about this, is that one of the most fundamental changes to American culture. I'm not sure if this is going on in Canada, but I'm guessing it is probably the Western world is that in our country right now, 50% of the women over the age of 35 don't have children. And so you think about like, that's never occurred before. And there are women out there that are saying, you're right, because it used to be that the only way I could be valuable is if you put a baby in me and I was raising them and I was stuck at home and uh, you met my wife. My wife is an excellent physical therapist. She she is at the very, very top of her game. Maybe it maybe having children would have interfered with her ability to help other people. Like the birth control allowed women to not have to only be vehicles for babies and to be able to do this. But it has changed the nature of our culture such that I, I think it's like in the United States, 35% um, more people that were women without children voted for um, Democratic candidates, Democrats. And so you think like that's a huge voting block of people that are operating under the same political principles, maybe because they don't have children or maybe because the reason they don't have children is the way that they think about things. And this is changing not just our culture, but our political system and what we vote for and what becomes legal and what becomes illegal and, you know, who becomes in charge and who gets the power. And it's happening because of birth control that happened in what, the 60s? So I continue to find myself in this little, as my prime minister would say, fringe group of 
I have a rural background. So once upon a time, majority of people had rural background. You go back to the twenties in Canada. It was, uh, yeah. 80% majority- of the population lived. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now it's flipped. It's 83% in Canada live in cities. So if you have rural ideas, I'm already in the minority. Um, I come from, uh, you know, ideas that guns are not the worst thing under the sun because it lends itself to where I'm from. Oh, that's a minority idea. Or at least that's what it's portrayed as. I come from a family that eats meat. Well, that's starting to become this fringe idea. You know, I come from a, a land of oil and gas. That's become a fringe idea. I'm in the fringe on everything. And when you talk about women not having children, I, I, like, I'm all for um, women getting to decide and, and having that ability and having things open and workplace and everything else. But uh, we both know this. One of the most important things I ever did in my life was married. I don't think people understand how big and important a decision that is. And in society, we treat it like it can just be thrown away, which I mean, if there's no kids involved, sure. But if you approach the biggest decisions of your life, like it can be thrown away, how are you approaching life in general? That's one thing. Two is kids were probably the best decision that I had zero clue what I was getting myself into, because how can you possibly know? But there's so much meaning in that. And it's only going to grow over time as they get older, hopefully, God willing. And so, like, coming back to this, women that 50% over 35, like, I don't know what that does to society. I have no idea. But there's so much value in raising children and having children and what that does to a human being that instead of promoting, we're not. We're just promoting that because you get to have your life and go work in one of the ivory towers, that's where the meaning of life is. It's like, no, that's why Jordan Peterson and people like that are starting to or or have risen to fame because they're trying to point out that some of the meaning in life, fans, is just the simple things. It's not having $10 million in your bank account. It's not like whatever that is. Certainly, I I love having something that's impactful to me. And, and my wife is a career-driven woman, and I love that she's found that. But we still love having kids, and that is, like, really, really important. Family is my number one thing. If coming to Sa- uh, St. Louis was going to pull away from that, I wouldn't have come. If getting uber-famous is even possible and I lose my family, I won't do it. Because that is the most important thing. And they have to be there. And I w- I just gave a talk last night about the lessons I've learned from legacy interviews. So I don't talk about what people say in the interviews, but I talk about like, hey, there are patterns that emerge here. And one of the things that I say close to the end of the talk is some of the stories you should consider telling your children. This was at a very prestigious country club. People that have been very, very successful. They're paying a lot of money to be a part of this, more than most people's yearly salary, just to be a member of that club. And one of the things that I talk about is the best question I ask during legacy interviews is what should your children know about success? And what that's really all about is to say, most of the time people talk about what is it, um, what does it take to be successful, right? But the real question is, let's imagine you get successful on some domain, money, career, whatever. What is important about getting there? Like what was worth sacrificing? Weekends, evenings, time away from the family versus what was not worth sacrificing. Your marriage, an affair, drugs and alcohol. Evenings, weekends away from the family. It could be, right? right? 
And that's one of those things that most of the time when you're a young person, you're so focused on can I succeed that you you maybe can lose out on this whole vision. And so if we're talking about people that are living in totally different paradigms, because once you have children, you are locked into the future paradigm in some way. Because it's not just like, well, when I die, you know, we're going to wrap it up and see you later. I'm sending my daughters out into this world. So I want a situation where they can get work if they want to, that they can marry who they want to, whatever that is. Society is really, really changing its definition of what is successful right now. And, you know, how destabilizing is this? I was going to, you know, I put a lot of value in, in family, being around them, being present, because uh, I understand how impactful those years are. And saying all that, I also wonder when the time comes that, and you get called to war. And I, I don't mean like, uh, I don't mean actually, well, I mean, it could be in an essence like going to actual war with bullets flying and bombs going off and everything else, where you have to leave your family for the betterment of your family. Um, because there's, you know, like my father, uh, at a point in his age, right around where I am now for the, for his family had to leave and had to go, uh, work away from home for a lot of days. And even then, while he was away from me, he was teaching us different things, even though he wasn't impacting us, um, every single day. And so I, I guess I, I'm curious, you know, what point in, does a man or woman, I guess, maybe, get called away to war? And I'm just using that as an analogy. And does it happen to every single one of us? I don't know. You know, you, you sit here and I, my immediate reaction is to say, man, I hope I don't get called away to war. But you know who gets called away to war are people that are needed. People that have something to... And I want to be clear. I don't mean war going off to Iraq. I, I, I recognize like... I mean, it could be it could like be the call. convoy. It could, could be, be the call. Convoy. It could be that. It could be for somebody their call is to go into politics. It could be for somebody their call is to... I don't know, become involved in a community project that instead of being around on every single weeknight, now they're gone for, you know, if they were going to be around 100% of the time, now they're only around 40% of the time. You understand? Like, yeah, that I mean, can be your call to go out anyways. But this is in, in the, you know, when you make that decision on who to get married to, you couldn't possibly be ready for all the decisions you're going to make with this person or how badly you're going to need them or how much you're going to need them to be forgiving or patient or whatever. And it's amazing to think about the being called off to war. The only way you're gonna, your family is going to survive that is if you chose the right partner. And without the right partner, you're just, you're a solo act and you're, you're floating off in the universe. And it's for your kids, for my kids, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to impart on them how important that decision is. Because for me, I don't know if I understood how important of a decision that is. I think I kind of like figured it out kind of along the way. Like I didn't have a sit down chat with mom and dad where they said like, listen, you better make sure about these things. And I remember going to the Catholic church, my wife's Catholic. And them talking about kids and money and religion, I think, were the three uh, big things that you need to talk about. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, I've talked about some of these things. You're an idiot. And yet here I sit 
I've, you know, I, I've talked to you about this off air about religion and, and, uh, the world unseen, uh, I'm broaching that subject right now. And it's one of the things I would say that I'm weakest with, uh, my wife in, and talking about it. probably a lot of us are, because it's, it's kind of like the, how do you broach that subject? It's a tough one. Money's easy. I think not for everyone and certainly kids, you either want them or you don't. All right. But yeah. I think you actually probably this is a good thing worth thinking about, right? Which is which of those areas are you good at working with your wife on and which are the ones that you should be working on, right? Like which are the ones that you need to focus on because it probably changes over time, right? And and you know, you think about it, my wife and I were married for almost 10 years before we had kids. Um and now that we've been married for 10 years, more than 10 years now, and I'm 40, this is 25% of my life. You think about those people that got married when they were in their early 20s, right? And they, by the time they're 40, they've spent 50% of their life with this person. They have actually grown up with this person and in these moments. And whatever you came to that relationship with, whatever you thought about God or how you thought you were going to raise children or what money was even going to be available to you, right? Now, all of a sudden, these things are different, so you got to get realignment. I don't think you ever get to be like, we shipped it. Well, none of that's static. Yeah. Like, you could have a million dollars or take the money. You could be in a financially stable position and in the last two years have lost your job, had a kid get sick where you got to throw everything at trying to figure out the best possible. So you could go from having money to broke. Um, you could have a partner that had something happen that disarmed whatever made them great and is no longer there. Uh, rode on a plane, you know, like I can't, I can't help myself if you get stuck on me beside a plane. I, I love talking to people. You and me both. So I, I sat and talked to this lady and she was, I think late forties and her husband had got MS. And so I was like, how's that going? I mean, like, I don't mean to pry. I just like, you know, to me, that would be extremely difficult. Not because I'm going to run away and go find someone new because I'm like, my vow is to my partner and I, I want to, you know, through thick or thin. Well, what does thick or thin mean? You know, like you can plan in your 20s or your 30s or whenever you you cross, you know, and, and decide to make that choice. But like nothing static. We're all getting older. Kids throw so many curveballs you can't even begin to imagine. Yeah, because you don't really know how your partner is going to be until, until you get into at 3 a.m., and the baby won't stop crying and both of you need sleep because both of you got stuff to do the next day. And now you're like, are we fighting over this? Is one of us going to win or are we finding a way to cooperate? And man, you don't know. You don't know who you are until so you've gone like, through that. How do you prepare your kids for something as monumental of a choice like that, which you can't even begin to explain? Well, when people used to say this answer that I'm going to say, it seems so cliche, but it's like, you just have to be the man that you want your daughters to want to fall in love with and your sons to want to be like. And the only way you can do that is proof of work. It's to actually do that. And I, uh, you know, I have some regrets about how I treated my 20s, right? I, I uh, dated a girl and got broken up with and it really tore at my sense of self because I was totally head over heels for this, like the first, you know, love that you have in college or whatever. She breaks up with me and I start being like, oh, well, you may not like me. You may not want to be with me, but I'm going to go show you that I can get all of these other, you know, women to find me, you know, interesting and exciting and want to be around me. And uh, I don't think I was a very good person during that time. 
And I am rightfully afraid that my daughters will one day fall in love with that Vance, right? The one that but was they might running need, around. But they might need to. Yeah, but maybe they, they maybe not. Listen, I don't I, know I, that. I don't know that anybody would be like, man, am I glad I dated Vance Crow back in the, his twenties? Well, that that can be fair, but like I, I, I take that back. I don't. I don't think my ex girlfriends are like, oh, he, you know, was totally unfair to me or treated me horribly. But I, I just. I wasn't seeing them for them, and that's what I, I had a moment in my twenties where I treated women like dirt because they stick to you like mud, and and the reason why is I'd been walked. I was the nice guy, I always have been. I mean, I'm, I, I don't, constantly make fun of you about it. That's right. <laughs> and I had a stretch in my late when I was nineteen to probably until I met Mel, where I was a dick, and it was a choice because I was tired of women walking on me, and I was done with it. And so I told him not what I thought. I didn't hold back. And I was a dick. And I have no regrets on that because I think um, it's another stage of life that, sure, could I have been the nice guy the rest of my life? No, but there's times you got to stand up for yourself. There's times when a good looking woman doesn't just get to have, you know, everything and, and, and then and then, right? Like that isn't the way the world works. You have to treat people with respect. And I certainly... Um, don't want to go back to that, Sean. But I li I lived that life uh, for for a stint as well, like where I just you know I'm tired of the like no. When I was in the middle of this, right, the excitement you're like dating somebody, seeing if you can get them to be into you, and and it was fun and exciting. And I remember being like, why would you want to be married? Like, look how fun this is. You get you know if this one ends, doesn't matter. A couple of weeks later, you're gonna meet some other you know really attractive, interesting person. And then when you get to being like our age and you're married for a time, you're like, God almighty, don't make me go back to that. Whatever happens, I do not want to go back because the value of having a partner that's your worthy adversary or compatriot or whatever, the person that can balance you out, like it would be awful to be without it. And so you think about going back to your thing about what happens when life takes changes and, you know, your wife gets MS or, you know, becomes disabled or something. I hope that I can find a way to be poetic about it because Pete, you know, his wife, Millie, would raise their kids. And she, Pete was my mentor, 100 year old mentor. Spent yep. all this time with him. I, uh, fascinating interviews, actually, if nobody's ever listened to them. Thank you. I, I agree. I mean, like he was just a brilliant man. He gave me that one interview. I've tried to do more. And he's like, I've said everything I'm going to say. So that's a 100 year old man with lots of wisdom. One of the things that he told me... Is he still alive? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do I get to meet him? If you want, we could go out to New York and meet him. Sure. He's in New York. Yeah. Mm. But I would plan a trip to go out there. I'm, I, I got to go to New York for some other stuff. So maybe we should think about that. So, but anyway, <laughs> Pete said to me, Millie getting Alzheimer's was sad for me, but it wasn't sad for her. She just, you know, her memories were drifting away. And the best part about it was she took care of me for 80 years. And I got to take care of her. And I think... Yeah, I really appreciate that sentiment. How can I be the sort of person that views the crisis poetically like Pete? Because it's not going to play out the same way that Pete's did. Crisis is going to happen. But what made Pete be able to survive that crisis was he found a poetic way to understand what was happening. Yeah, I am... Um... Man, I, I, uh, I, I said uh, on stage... Uh, with Quick Dick and Twos, they asked, you know, one of the questions from the audience is, what's, who's impacted your life the most? And so I got to 
my wife is in the in the audience. And I got to say it, and everybody's like, "Oh!" And then they made jokes about me trying to get laid and everything. I was like, "No, I'm like, I'm like literally dead serious," you know. She's been uh, luck, fate. I don't know what the word is. Somehow I stumbled into uh, the right woman, or she stumbled in. I don't know because uh, finding that has been has been better than words can describe. And uh, I love going deep into subjects. So, I mean, obviously, uh, as we sit here and talk and, and, and roll around ideas, she said probably the best compliment that she did not realize she said to me the other day, Vance. And I was talking about the Bible. I can't, you know, I started reading the Bible again, uh, just trying to, here's this old book of knowledge. I started reading it. Anyways, it's pretty Lindy, right? It's been around for a long time. That's right. Probably be around for a long time. So I was explaining, I was asking her about, you know, some ideas and, uh, and it was about heaven. And she said something along the lines of, uh, honestly, I don't know if I really care. I was like, Oh, why is that? She says, well, every day that I'm with you and the kids is, is heaven. Like, and I was like, wow, that, that should be put on a postcard. And, uh, you know, what a good woman, right? Because that sort of thinking is a choice. Yes. It's it's like we think of it as, oh, man, you know, you're lucky, Sean, because you found a woman that wants to be in love with you. But you choose that, right? You choose is the suffering that I'm going through by being up at 3 a.m. or dealing with diapers or doing whatever. Is this something that I love or is it something that I resent? And it's your it's the thousand actions that you take every day that allow you to love it as opposed to resent it. Well, and I got to be on like marriage or any relationship is an is a roller coaster. You're going to have your ups and your downs. Mm -hmm. And one of the best things that Mel and I have done in our relationship and I would say to anyone who is, you know, wherever you're at is communication, right? Like we talk we talk a lot. And at times it's uncomfortable times I do not agree but that puts us on an even playing field because she knows where I'm at and I know where she's at and I, I like you think my wife wants to hear me talk about uh oh my know, wife doesn't listen to my podcast but, she's like I mean like <laughs> I know but like about all these difficult subjects and yet if you don't talk about them you're hiding from like chunks so if you're if you're if you're uh I'm not gonna give marriage advice I I would just in my life, when I'm struggling in our marriage, our relationship, we talk about it because that uncovers what's actually going fuck on. The best thing that happened to my wife and I was we we're getting we we're getting married. We're going through the planning of the wedding and we start having conflict in a way that I had never dealt with conflict before, because it used to be if I'm dating a girl and we have a little bit of a fight and she doesn't want to resolve it the way I want to resolve it. That's fine. I'm just going to go date someone else. Right. But now. You're preparing to get married to this person, right? And like you heard my wife say this morning, we only knew each other for six months before we got engaged, right? So we're starting to have these conflict and I'm like, oh crap, what am I going to do? I'm actually not that good at arguing with a woman that I can't just leave, right? So we did this. Uh, I, I got advice from a guy at the World Bank, actually, who said you should go see an Imago therapist. Are you familiar with this, Imago therapy? Imago therapy is this fascinating style of it's really a style of communication you have a, a if, if you and i were doing imago therapy a therapist would be sitting right there but you and i would be looking at each other and what we would be doing is just 
talking and listening. So you would say something to me about something hurtful I did to you. You know, you you didn't pick me up at the right time. Da, 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 da. Instead of me being like, you told me to pick you up at 1130 and then you changed the time. And, you know, me telling you, well, instead I say, I'm hearing you say, Sean, that I was supposed to be at the airport to pick you up and that really pissed you off that I wasn't. Is that correct? And then you start to say like, yes or no. And then I say, is there more? That therapist here is if I start to jump in and start to fight with you while you're telling me what I'm supposed to be hearing, if I'm not just repeating back and showing I've heard what you have to say, then she throws the flag and we start again. And then you tell me it again. And I repeat back for you what I heard. And you do this. And then eventually it's my turn. And you have to repeat back what I'm saying. Oh, well, you know, I feel like you're always relying on me and you forcing know, you to have a conversation. And it's teaching you that most of the time you're not actually listening. Because you, in order to listen to somebody, in order to mirror back and say, is this what you're saying? Yeah. You have to listen. And by me giving you an accurate representation of what you just said, I have to actually be thinking about what you're saying. And you have to hear your argument that you just made to me from a different part of your brain. And so we start dialoguing. This technique that I do with my wife called mirroring literally changed my life in every aspect because it taught me how to listen to my wife and how to make sure she knew that I was listening. So we, I can't think of the last time there was yelling in my house over, over a disagreement. And that it was that imago therapy is what made yeah, that well, possible. I think, yeah. Usually yelling, you just got to get to the, you got to get to the bottom of it. Right. Like usually you're yelling, you know, that's just emotion coming out. I, uh, are you a yeller? Um, no. Uh, at times with my kids, I can be. Uh, stern voice, I guess. Parent voice. Um, because at times my kids are, they're vibrating on a different level. And you have to snap them out of it. And I haven't found, it doesn't mean I'm right, but at times that will snap them out of it. With my wife, no. Um, have I raised my voice? Maybe yelled? Oh, for sure. Like, I have. But I don't like to make a habit out of any of that. Usually, my wife is a skilled, skilled arguer. Like, I mean, it drives me fucking insane. Because she is really quick. And I need to chew on something. <laughs> I, just, I, I love to process. I love to think about it. Uh, and so, when she gets me to a point of frustration, she can break me that way. And... Usually when I get to that point and do something that where I raise my voice, it's probably a clear indication to her that she's gone too far. But I mean, does it happen? No, not overly. And I would say over the course of time, because we've been married eight years, but we've been together 15 going on 16. And um, I think that's something that you slowly learn. Combatants, the wrong word, but you, you know, you're you slowly learn how each other operate. And I would say early on, when I was coming out of my 20s where I told you what I thought, I would say I probably yelled more then than I ever do now. Uh, but, you know, that's that's time and learning and, and, you and know, my, dance and the dance of, of life together. We were married maybe five years or so. And uh, it was right around the time I was listening to Jordan Peterson. Um, but my wife one time was like, I hate arguing with you. You always win. And at first I was like, no, I don't. You win too. And it dawned on me. I don't want her to have the experience of if she's trying to communicate something to me that she thinks is important, yeah. 
that I somehow beat her because I'm standing on a stage, I'm arguing every day, I'm doing it professionally, right? Like my brain works this way and I am extremely disagreeable, right? Like I don't mind the conflict at all. It was when she told me that I was like, whoa, hold up, Vance, you are doing something wrong here. It's not her perception. You know, I think she actually did win arguments, but I was making her feel like she was the loser. And that Jordan Peterson woke me up to that. And I was like, I don't, I, I, I don't know if you went and asked her right now, she'd probably still say, oh, Vance wins most of the arguments, but I've gone to great lengths to make it. So I am not letting her win, but I'm being open to the idea that she maybe should win some of these arguments. And maybe some of the things that I'm doing that are bullheaded that she's like clapping her hands about, you know, maybe I need to like wake up and hear them. I mean, winners and losers in a marriage isn't, isn't a good thing. <laughs> no. Right. Like you're both in it together. And so, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I just come back to, I've been extremely fortunate in my pick, you know, like I, but I, it, that plays out in like, I tell this story all the time. This is, this will get us into a different topic with my wife. I, uh, one of the things in the podcast is, is like this pattern spotting, right? Is this pattern I've seen about how, and Christians and probably different religions hate when I use well, it could be God, it could be the universe. I don't know what it is. It's something, some force, uh, creator, whatever word you want to associate to it. I'm right now where I sit, I don't have a definitive. This is it. My wife, um, when I say, you know, maybe I ran into her, maybe she ran into me, maybe there's luck to me. It's like one thing I'm pretty certain on is divine intervention or fate or whatever you want to call it. And what I mean by that is I went to, uh, two schools to look at their hockey programs. One was nationally ranked. Every hockey player would have picked it in a heartbeat. I went there and I just didn't jive with the people. They weren't my people. That's, that's all I can say about it. The next school I went to didn't win a game the year before. Oh, <laughs> had the worst hockey rink I've ever been in like bar none. It was not a great hockey rink, but had a campus that I was just like, huh? And the people were great, but I stayed for, I don't know, three hours. And I was like, Nope, I'm going back. I need to get back to this program here. And a giant snowstorm happened. But I was still, no, nope, I'm going. And I'm leaving the town. And two ambulances go flying by and a cop car because there'd been a huge accident on the highway back. And I mean, it's blizzarding like like nobody's business. You can't see anything. And I'm, I'm like, huh. So I went to the pay phone. I didn't have a cell phone back then. Called the coach from this, this uh, from Northland. From the Westgood College? Yes. From okay. Yeah. And said, uh, I think maybe I'll spend the night. And so I spent the night with uh, what would turn out to be my wife's best friend's husband. And we hit it off and a group of people. And I ended up not going to the college that everyone would have chose. I ended up going to this place I was just meant to be. I, I don't know how better. I had the greatest time of my life. The day one I walked into campus, I was, I was late getting scheduled into the school. And so instead of being in the freshman dorms, I got pushed to upperclassmen dorms. And I was older anyways. I was 21 at the time, right? And who's the first person I see walking in? My wife. And did I talk to her? No, I was a dick to her. And like the story runs and it took, but literally she was like kitty corner to where I lived. We were that close. And it came off of a snowstorm that I can't even begin to 
explain that I was going back. Like, hell or high water, I was going back until the two ambulances went flying by, and I'm like, maybe that's a sign. And I didn't think that way. But now looking back at it, I certainly do. And so, like, meeting my wife, as much as I'm like, I had absolute control in that, I did not have absolute control of that. And I don't, I don't know about love at first sight, but that's not what it was. Yeah, for Ann and I, the the story is divine, but in a in a like a different spin. So I connect with this, like it seems like because Ann would not on almost any dynamic be like, what is Vance looking for as he's dating these women? It was not what Ann was about, right? She was actually a Catholic girl that was going to church and was going to expect me to go to church with her, which was not on my like agenda. She was uh, an athlete, and what she wanted to do for fun was to go exercise. I wanted to go drink and then watch movies the next day or, like, you know, be a lazy bum. And so now I've got this woman that, like, shows up late to shit, and I'm on time like a Swiss watch. She wants to exercise. She wants to go to church. But for whatever reason, I was just so drawn to her. Just so... And dumb... Vance that made all kinds of bad decisions throughout his whole life, you know, for whatever reason was like, I met this girl. I got to get her to marry me. Right. I like whatever I I've got to do. And I, I have a whole story I tell about Pete and, and the interaction that I had with him. That's when I knew I went from being like, she's a really amazing woman that I like dating to being like, we should get married. Have I told you this story before? Is I, we went up to visit him. So this is like the, the, you know, the pilgrimage from Washington, D.C. up to New York. We go to visit Pete. And uh, as soon as we get up there, he is uh, having a great time. We have some drinks. It's Friday night. We have a good dinner. He, he gets to talk with Ann. Ann loves him. It's so wonderful. Wake up the next morning, and Pete is already up, made breakfast, and is like, here, eat your breakfast because you're going to get out of here. And we're like, why would we leave, Pete? We're here to see you. He's like, I want you to go to this art show. I'm like, Pete, I don't want to go see some dumb art show. Like, and Pete was the one that had got me into art. So like, he, I, I couldn't be like, I don't like art. Like he, he was just like, go see this. And I'm like, I'm not going to fight with him. So we, you know, get dressed up, put our coats on to leave. And right as we're getting ready to leave, he goes, uh, and dear, would you mind waiting outside? And, uh, I'm like, what the fuck? You know, like, is he going to tell me like, you guys can leave and you don't need to come back. Like, did she say something last night that pissed him off or yeah. you know what? And, uh, and so she steps outside and I'm like shaking. He grabs me by the arm and he looks straight at me and he goes, okay, when you get to this art museum, don't look at the art. Look at her looking at the art. It's those eyes that she'll see you with. And this was such an amazing thing because I would have gone to that art show and been like, oh, look at that color. What do you think of the composition? You know, trying to be impressive. And instead I was sitting there trying to understand which piece of art does she get drawn to? What does she care about? And what I found was that she cared about things I didn't care at all about, but she was caring about, did this not, is this a giant piece of art that's really colorful, but did this take the artist a long time to do? Did they have to really dedicate months or even years to making this? Because then she cared about it. It was a craft. They weren't just throwing paint up on the wall. And I realized like, if I marry this woman, she's going to demand this of me, which is more than I will ever demand of myself. And that will make me better. And that's when I was like, all right, right, um, she has passed the test. Pete was right. This is exactly correct. I'm marrying her. Hmm. See, uh, 
I got a brother who um, was married in in under a year. Uh, very similar, um, maybe not same circumstances, but fast. And uh, Mel always put the brakes. She was she was methodical, and I, I actually appreciate it because I, I was after six months, I was probably head over heels. But we were methodical, and more so, she was methodical in making sure that it was the right thing. And now I probably waited too long at the end. Yeah, and I did stupid things like go play hockey in Finland, really put stress on a relationship to try and make it across the pond and everything else. I don't recommend that to people. And yet I don't regret it. I needed to go play hockey and get paid for it and experience that and put that. And say, I could have done this. This is the path I could go. And then you change because you said the reason you didn't play paid hockey was because of a girl. Yeah, well, I, I, when I left Finland, I couldn't get, it was in the middle of a season. My niece was getting married in Mexico and I hadn't seen Mel in, I don't know, months. And you could, you could just tell, like it, everybody has that moment where you understand things are going to change forever. And that was one of those moments where if I don't get on the plane and go see my girlfriend, soon to be a future wife, not soon to be, that will fade and it will disappear. But if I get on the plane, I cannot come back into Finland because my paperwork still hadn't gone through. So I knew by getting on the plane, I was I was calling it quits. I was taking all my stuff, packing up. I had to go talk to the GM and the team and be like, <laughs> I know you've signed this gun, but I'm, so yeah, I got to go see about a girl. And uh, it was the easiest conversation I ever had. But yeah, I, I don't even, like I have zero regrets on it. And, uh, you know, if the world put me in a place to meet Mel, it was my choice to keep Mel. I guess is where I would put it, right? Don't regret any of that. That is poetic. That's a that's a poetic way to look at it. I and how do you pass these lessons on to your kids, right? Like I I I think it's as much as I want it to be storytelling, you know, having them hear the Pete story which they'll hear it so many times, they, they, you know, by the time they're old enough. But I really think that the only influence you're going to have over who your daughters want to get married to is can they meet who dad was for us? And can you set that bar so high that only great men are even willing to, to, to try and, and, uh, you know, get in their good graces? Well, yes, you have to, you have to model it for them. Absolutely. But then they got to go out and experience the world themselves. And I think for any parent, including myself, especially when it comes to your daughter or daughter's, that's going to be extremely, for a man, I think that's like, I want to be so protective. I want them to only ever date one guy and it'd be the perfect guy and whatever else, blah, blah, blah. But that isn't my wife's story. That isn't my sister's story. That isn't probably your wife's story, right? Like at some point, kids need to go experience. They need to leave the nest. They need to go have their experiences. They need to, you know, for me, uh, riding across the country uh, was. Are you sure this isn't abdicating a responsibility that a dad should have? This is the thing that I have really been grappling with. And granted, my daughters are two years old and three months old. So this is all theoretical. My daughter's five. So, so I, but I'm wondering if society hasn't told us like, hey, parents, it's a new age. You know, we, we did it and it's okay. And women need to go out and experience things when we really look at it. And we so say, so you'd rather stage marriage for them and, and, uh, and do that, uh, have them be like, you're getting married to this one guy. Well, I think that to say definitively, that that does not have value 
is to overlook centuries of human practice that probably had some reason it, it went that way. It, you know, it's not that didn't didn't back then the reason they did it was for the political world of games of of tying yourself to landowners and kings and queens and tying families together and creating strong bonds that way. Well, it could be that the thinking that you're putting forward of like they've got to go out and experience is peasant way of thinking. And the I'm going to preserve my daughters for, you know, to try and make it so that they're they're they do only date one person. Rewind the clock. Let's just take us two. Right. If your parents had said Vance, you're marrying Jody from across the street. That's your. What would you think about that? Uh, it, it wouldn't work for me. It would have it would have been bad. But I'm a man too, right? Like maybe that would be really good for Jody. Maybe maybe that puts Jody with you know, the person that they can say, so I don't know that there's a universal thing here. I just know that we have an unquestioning belief that it's like, if a parent tried to arrange a marriage here, you found a family was doing that, you'd be like, who are those ancient people? And it might be worth thinking about what instruction should I be giving my children and what expectations should I have for them? Because the expectations, if they live up to them, will make their lives better. And the expectation wouldn't be, I want you to go date 10 guys before you get married. That wouldn't be your expectation. No, but I, I don't know if I'd ever phrase it in that. I think you need to go get, you know, plowed by 50 guys. <laughs> like, I mean, let's cut the brass tacks. Yeah. I just think like my life has been shaped by my experiences. If I never left home, if I never got out from under my parents' wings, had to start thinking for myself. If I never experienced heartbreak and, you know, how women treated the nice guy. And I'm just, you know, I'm just my experiences. If I didn't witness how the world interacted, I wouldn't be with the guy I am. And I wouldn't have been able to be, hopefully, the husband I am to my wife now. And I think uh, for, for my kids, that's going to be part of the wisdom I pass along. Is you need to experience the world. I, that doesn't mean that you have to go to a retreat where it's a giant orgy and everything else, right? Like, it just... It means take respect to yourself. You have to have respect for yourself and others. But along the road to finding respect, you're going to do some dumb things. And that's okay. Don't kill yourself over or beat yourself up on it. Because we all do dumb things. Like, I mean, that's how you figure things out. You know, how do you figure out the stove's hot? You touch it. And then you realize, maybe don't do that again. Well, when it comes to 18-year-old kids going through college and everything else, how do you realize 24 beers isn't right? Well, you do it 15 times and then slowly decide maybe that isn't the right thing to do. Some people never find their way out of that hole. I'm happy I did. Like I think the thing that I, because I I had, you know, that, that's what I did. College was a, a wild party for me. It was, and, and the reason that I got value out of college was because it honed my ability to communicate with regular people. And, but like, it wasn't the classes and that was just, just a horrible waste of money for how I, you know, embraced it. When I went to grad school, that was a good use of money. I was really paying attention then because I was really on the hook for it. And I understood I was on the hook for it. But I sit here and wonder if the aristocracy wants the, the, uh, the plebs, you know, it wants the, uh, the, uh, the peasants to be thinking, Hey, do college and your kids have got to run around and they've got to, they are holding their children to a different standard and putting them in different circumstances where yes, they get prepared for the world, but not by rolling around in the mud, 
but by thinking about things at a meta level, at a, yes, you're giving up the um, instantaneous pleasure of hookup culture for this larger thing that may catapult you and your relationship and your our ability to maintain wealth within our family or maintain property or to build a family legacy that's bigger than the one that we have. I'm not saying I come from that. I'm saying I have to at least wonder, am I thinking about things like a peasant or like a king? And I don't know. It's worth enter- it's worth entertaining the discussion. I think even the aristocracy's kids are in a hookup culture. I think you're lying to yourself if you don't think that exists. I, I, are there people that try and control it? Absolutely. The more you try and control, like, I don't know. I'm just going off what's worked for me. And when I come all the way back to it, it's like, can you be a peasant, lowly person and make yourself into something that's successful? And whether that's just relationships, money, maybe all of it, I don't know. Yeah, that happens all the time. We live in the Western world. You can do that. You can start a company tomorrow and be uber successful. I mean, and you don't need to go to school to do that. Lots of people do it with their own two hands. And I mean, when it comes to relationships and finding you know, what your parents modeled to be what you wanted if, if you, you came from a healthy family dynamic. Maybe you came from an unhealthy family dynamic and you understand what you don't. I don't, I don't know. It's like, the way I learned is by experiencing the world. And I think my children need to experience it. Could be the wrong idea. Could not be what the high ups in the Ivy Towers do. But honestly, I don't know if I give two fucks at times what they think because I think they have a corrupted view of the world as well. And so to me, I want them to go out and experience. I want them to, be, you know, they, they got to figure out how to respect themselves first. Some of that comes with figuring out what doesn't feel good. And, and as a parent, you know, it's easy to say that when your kids are six, five and three, right? It'll be tough when they get older. Yeah. Like those are going to be some tough years because you know, it's, it's got to be. Think of your parents or think of your, your, your mentors or whoever who've like, you know, once upon a time, I thought 36 was old as shit or 40. And now here I sit and I'm like, man, I got the world by yeah, the Yeah, we tail. just got started. Yeah. I'm just starting to learn things. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my kids are going to be the same way. They're going to hit 18 and they're going to get, I'm out of your rules. I'm going. Okay. And how as a parent can you offer support and allow them to have a, an open path back to at any point, but still have enough independence to go out and make mistakes and not feel like every mistake is a, you know, it's a death sentence, so to speak. I don't know, it's going to be, I went, a, I went three provinces away to do that, right? Like I moved a far way away from home. I wanted nothing more than to get out from under my parents' wings. I want to, you know, and me too. It was the only thing that mattered to me was, was leaving, was getting out. And yet in saying all that, I landed with a family because I had to build it with family that were my second family. And over time surrounded myself with all these great people. And when you're surrounded by great people, they look out for you. And all of a sudden, although you're three provinces away or maybe a different country away, you're surrounded by all these people who have the best for you. And I don't know how to teach that other than to maybe model it and how you treat other people. Well, and this goes along with my, I'm trying, I don't even know that I have a name for it. This is some somewhat just thinking as I'm speaking out loud, but like how to think like a king, right? Or how to think like a, like a dynasty, right? 
even if it's not that you want to be a king to rule over things, you want to be a good king. You want to be the type of king that makes the the world around you better and and to be able to build giant um you know renaissance cathedrals and pay for the the paintings to be done are there things that i need to be thinking about that are different because for a long time i thought well the way i'm going to raise my children is the way that my wife was raised because it really worked and it and i see the impact that it's had which is they're Catholic and, you know, just raise them Catholic. And even though I don't believe what's going on here, we'll get them in there. We'll get them to Sunday school. We'll listen to the Bible. There's maybe some stuff that I don't really understand why this works, but it works. But I tried that and I couldn't stomach it because I didn't believe what they were saying. And I, I, I don't mean that other people shouldn't believe what they're saying. I'm saying I didn't believe it. And so now I'm trying to figure out how can I pass on the lessons, which is what the aristocracy was doing? They'd plop their kids in in church or whatever to give my children the ways of thinking and behaving that allows them to transcend and not be. It's not that I don't want them to be peasants. It's that I don't want them to be a part of the masses. Critical thinking, being able to think for themselves. I know when you're talking, all I think my brother gave me a book, London, uh, and I'm forgetting the author's name. And it it breaks down London from, you know, before it was ever formed all the way up to where it is today. Oh, yeah, because that's an old city. And it follows like, I don't know, five, six different families. And what I find fascinating about it is every generation is the same. Same thought process, same because they come from the same bloodline and, and they just go down now they're living in different times and some of them have hardships and whatever but it's the same kind of character played out over and over and over again and so you know what gives me uh, a little bit of i don't know if hope's the right word but a little bit of peace of mind maybe is my kids are the product of me and my wife and they're gonna see a healthy relationship and they're gonna have that dna in their blood that is gonna want them to read and put a ton of uh you know, prestige on being able to read and think and have a, a place to, you know, discuss, debate thoughts. Um, certainly for getting to know me, they're going to have all these times that I... Yeah, all your podcasts. Right? If they really want to, they can have, you know, hopefully by that time, thousands of yeah hours of content to just listen and find out what dad was really thinking. Because I'm wrestling. If they care to know. If they care to know. be blessed if they were. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, I don't know. I To me, you're right with the aristocracy in that they they pass along things. But, I mean, take the aristocracy for what it was. They were the powerful people. So they, they, they learned to read. They learned to understand how the game works and how money and power and blah-dee-da-dee-da. Everything. And... Lots of us don't put any emphasis on teaching a bunch of that, maybe, or that it, yeah, maybe, and some of us are still catching up because for a long time, you know, peasants weren't allowed to read the Bible or just allowed to read and write and all these things. They're very powerful tools. We just, now that it's become so um, prolific everywhere, we kind of just throw them to this, oh yeah, I can read and write, what, not a big deal. Well, it's important. And then reading is important. There's lots of great ideas uh, that have transcended time that if you can start to understand, you can implement in your life and you can push along. That's, I mean, you talk about Lindy and you talk about these different books 
there's, there's ideas in there that will shape your mind and change the way you think and allow you to, you know, become a better human being. And by doing that, good things will happen to you. Man, I can't think of a better place to wrap up. I was going to say I could talk to you all day, but I am going to go ahead and talk with you all day. So uh, let's wrap up. If people wanted to uh, find your podcast, yeah. where do they go to do that? Uh, Sean Newman Podcast. Uh, Sean with a U, so S-H-A-U-N. Uh, that throws people for a loop every time. Uh, and it's on Spotify and Apple, pretty much anywhere you can find uh, um your podcast and uh if you're but not on youtube but not on Sean YouTube. was banned from youtube yeah and we've started uploading back <laughs> on the rumble okay I'm not a big rumble fan like you can't even find me half the time and I, it makes zero sense if there's one thing if rumble is listening i change it's just make it easy to find people on your site i don't understand it and you're on twitter and on twitter facebook instagram yeah uh, s newman podcast um you know i I'm not a confrontational guy. I, I, I love having, con I'm open to discussing ideas as we've seen here, but you get on social media platforms and sometimes I just, ah, it's for the birds. But either way, thanks for having me in. It's cool to uh, finally get to see your setup and be here and, and uh, meet you in person and everything else. Man, it feels like we've been brothers a long time. Yeah, it does. So. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, uh, I'll say it one more time. You know, I talked about it with quick dick and twos, the weird world we live in where you can have such acquaintances through social media and technology but nothing beats in person and that is why if you're listening to this podcast and you think man i would love to share this idea with uh with vance or sean hit me up you know get sean's uh, phone number from the from his podcast episodes find my dms on twitter or facebook and like i want to chat i want to hear what you thought of the episodes i want to hear where you disagreed with me that is the power of this. Our gravity well grows. We get to meet all these other interesting people. So, Sean Newman, let's go get some lunch. Sounds good. Ah, ah, ah.